Welcome back to Relentless Minds. This is your host, Lori Jimenez. Thank you so much for tuning in for another inspirational and moving episode about resilience and the human will to live a better life. On this podcast, I interview incredible people that have faced and overcome some of life's most difficult challenges and yet seem to come out stronger in the end. I'm truly in awe at the ability of humans to fight to see a better day which is why I wanted to learn and understand more of how it's possible. This curiosity is what encouraged me to create Relentless Minds. I hope that you not only receive inspiration from these stories, but also that you learn a lesson or two on what we all are capable of when it comes to creating our own lives. On today's episode, I speak with an incredibly strong soul, who for the majority of her childhood was labor trafficked across many states with her sister. Hope Lloyd opens up about her experience being forced to work grueling hours and in horrible conditions at the hands of a woman who exploited and abused her and her sister for years over their lives. Hope shares details about this period in her life that she has never told before on a media platform. I allowed Hope to express herself openly and reassured her that her story was safe here with us. Also, I just wanted to note that this is okay for families to hear as well. Get ready to listen to an impactful story of survival, resilience, and reclamation. Thank you for being here. Hi, Hope. Thank you so much for being here today to share your story with us. Hi, how are you, Jing? I'm doing well. So your story is a unique one on Relentless Minds since we haven't yet had the privilege of covering this issue until today. In today's conversation, we'll be talking about your experience being labor trafficked as a child and adolescent and what this experience was like for you and the journey to healing after you were finally rescued. This is an important conversation to have because there are more victims out there that can hopefully gather encouragement and hope from our conversation today, as well as introducing this issue to people that may be hearing about this for the first time. To start this conversation, Hope, can you tell us more about labor trafficking and how your story with it began? Uh, So labor trafficking is when the perpetrator mentally controls you, manipulates you. They're usually super charismatic people. And they keep you away from society, away from school, away from jobs, you know, in public places. So we were basically kept in a house and uh, we did a lot of labor in the house for the person who uh, kept us captive. Um, It was a lot of physical abuse and emotional abuse for years. And we, we were moved, not just different cities or towns, but to completely different countries um, every like five or six years. I don't actually know if that was an intentional thing or if mm-hmm. uh, they just got paranoid and moved mm-hmm. every few years. Uh, but it started in England, China, Spain, and then finally we came to the US. This person who trafficked you wasn't a family member. How did you come to meet that person and how old were you? Goodness, let's see. So I was born in England. I was living in London with my biological mom and biological sister. And my mom, through her church, she befriended this woman named Mercedes. Mercedes 
was a volunteer social worker, I believe in China. And for some reason she was in England. I'm not really sure what she was doing there, but she was, and they happened to meet. Well, my biological mother at the time was being physically abused by my biological dad. I mean, they were married. He would physically abuse her, rape her. Um, and, you know, like 30 plus years ago in England, you know, you go to the police, but saying that you're being raped and physically abused, I mean, you're married. So, mm. you know, it's not like the, the women's rights and Me Too movement and things like that going on now. That's awesome. But 30 something years ago, he was there. that's your husband. What do you mean he's abusing you and raping you like you're married? You know, so I just remember life being like that for her and it was super violent and he was an alcoholic um like he'd break her nose and different things like that um so i remember the household always being tense and my mom worked three jobs you know obviously we did not have a lot of money we had a small or subsidized housing she was always gone i don't remember physical abuse but i do remember you know he didn't want us clearly. And he'd lock us up in the sheds in the garden. Um, and he just, he just wasn't a present father figure. And this was you um, and your sister at this time. Yes. Yes. And somehow she met Mercedes through her church and they befriended. And then Mercedes helped put my father in jail. Hmm. Um, and that was her in. I suppose, with our family, like she was helping my mother with an abusive situation with our biological dad. And then she then she'd ask us to go to China with her, you know, and we'd spend the summers over there with her. Um, just you girls. Just the girls. Yeah. My mom mm. didn't ever go. And when we were in China for the summer, it was just horrific she was she would just beat us and she was angry and it was she was just scary like this woman was about five foot ten five foot eleven she was yeah. about 200 something pounds she was she was a big woman and she was a strong woman and she was an angry woman all the time and then um finally we get, went back to England she I remember her coming to visit us in our house in England um, and I was a mom's girl, you know, I was hugging my mom's leg. I remember this like it was yesterday. How old were you? I was, about I was, oh, yeah. goodness, I was six years old, mm. six years old. Yeah. And I was hugging my mom's leg and I was terrified of Mercedes, you know, like I was shy. Um, and I remember her sitting in our living room and asking me if I want to go live with her in Spain. She said, you know, I've adopted this little girl. And you guys will be friends. She'll be your sister. Um, I'm going to give you a great education, an amazing social life. You'll still be in contact with your biological mom. You know, nothing really will change. Your life will just be better because she's poor and she can't take care of you. Um, and your father's in jail now. And even at six years old, um, I looked at her and said, no, thank you. I said, no, thank you. I don't want to go with you. And I just remember that was like the first instance of me seeing like that look on her, that evil look was like, 
you said no to me like how oh. dare you like oh I just I remember that it was just pierced in my mind forever and I was like oh crap <laughs> what did I just do um so a couple months go by and my mom biological mom was very somber she was very sad and I didn't you know like as children you you can sense that and you know something's wrong but you don't know exactly what it is and we'd often in England we used to go to this park Richmond Park and we'd always take the train and we'd go there and feed the deer and everything so that was something we did quite often and she told me wait I'm going to take you to Richmond Park but we didn't take the train this time we would take an airplane so at the Heathrow airport and I was like this was strange and I just knew I just in the pit of my stomach I knew something was wrong I knew we weren't going there. And then when we landed and we were in the taxi, all the signs for the the highways were in a different language. And I just knew, oh no, she's taken me to Spain. Just like that woman asked me a couple of months ago. You just knew this as a six-year-old. I knew as a, yes, I think, yes, yes. That's incredible. And yeah, it was really scary. And my mom, I remember the airplane ride. Like I could see her crying a little bit. She was sad. Um, we didn't talk a whole lot. I knew something was wrong. So I was just quiet. And and when we got to Spain, we checked in a hotel and we were waiting for Mercedes. So we're sitting outside on this patio waiting for Mercedes and her daughter. After that, my mom stayed a couple of days. Like we were, we went to the house. She stayed a couple of days. I think uh, before the week was over, I woke up. Gosh, it was my seventh birthday. I don't really remember, um, but it was my birthday, and I woke up and my mom had gone. I didn't, I didn't get to see her. She like didn't I say didn't goodbye. She, no, I'm sure Mercedes didn't let her. You know, I just remember this birthday card and she made me like a little stuffed animal like she had sewn like with velcro and you know and i just remember crying like that here i was left in the scary place with this scary woman yeah you were six or early on at that age and you were Seven. yeah so you were living in spain at this point then and you're with your with mercedes yeah, and you were with so- your sister did you guys, how long did you guys live there for? And what was the experience like when you were there? Did the abuse start immediately? So, yes, the abuse was immediate. Um, we were there for six years. We lived in this very affluent, rich neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We lived right next to a casting director. It was a gated community. And immediately we were given duties of cleaning, cooking. She purchased animals. So we had a lot of animals in the house. Uh, We'd have to clean up after the animals. We didn't have beds, but we had bedrolls. So they were like thick carpets and we'd put sheets and stuff over that. And that's where we'd sleep. And I always shared the bedroom or bed with my um, younger sister. So the Filipino girl she adopted we were the most well-behaved children because we were so terrified, not even little things. We didn't even do little things that kids, you know, I have nieces, you know, they do little yeah. things here and there. You know, nothing bad, just like naughty, I suppose. We didn't even do that. We were so terrified, so good. 
um, but we still got beaten a lot. So she would monitor food and drink and we didn't have access to anything. So she would say, oh, you hit the dog. I'm like, no, I didn't. She'd make us call her mommy. I said, no, mommy, I didn't hit the dog. Um, I didn't take the orange juice. I didn't, that wasn't me, but that wasn't enough. So and she would have you standing beside her in the room in front of her and she'd beat you until you said you did it. So until yeah. you confessed to doing whatever she said that you did, we couldn't leave. And this happened to all of us, sometimes at the same time, um, often one-on-one. And so then, you know, as a child, you're like, I'm not going to, you know, I've been here two hours already getting beaten, you know, with a bamboo stick, you know, like if I don't say yes, I'm going to keep getting beaten. Like what? So I, you just said, okay, yes, I did that. And then, and then she'd say, okay, well, how did you do it? So now, you know, you're thinking about, well, oh my goodness. Well, I didn't actually do that, but I said I did it to get her to stop beating me. So now I have to figure out a way of how did I do that? So then you'd make up a story of, well, I, you know, this is how I did it. You were there. My sisters were here. And, you know, well, why did you do that? Why did you do that? You know, and then it was just all the time, every day, every day. It was just toxic and um, abusive. It was, and in Spain, she started telling us that she was Jesus Christ. You know, and I wasn't religious. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about God or religion or Christianity or anything like that or Jesus. But she had said that he, she was God. And, you know, and I was seven years old. You know, my young sister was what, five. And then my oldest sister was about 12. Like we were young. Like it, the, the mind, the manipulation started really young. So we didn't know any better. So we're like, okay, you're Jesus Christ. Like, I don't know any better. One of her methods of getting us to confess was to have us close our eyes, open the Bible, and just point our finger to a verse. And then we'd open our eyes and read the verse. And, you know, like, especially the Old Testament, it's like God smited the town and, you know, killed the crops or whatever, you know, and she's like, oh, that's God's sign that, you know, you're evil, that you did wrong, you know, and God said, you know, yeah. So if it was positive, it was anything positive in the verse, she would say, oh, that's God telling me that it's going to be okay, that I have to deal with such awful, dirty, terrible children, evil evil children you know if that's him comforting me and if it was a negative verse that's god you know you're lying that's you know how long was it that you went like that you experienced this because you had traveled to multiple locations yeah so everything from start to finish was about 13 years 13 years did you ever um did you keep in touch with your mom during that time did you get to speak with her so I remember in Spain, a couple times we did talk to her, but Mercedes was in the room with us and she would dictate what we said to her. Um, she also manipulated us. When my mom left, like when she had brought me there and left, she would tell me, your mother doesn't love you. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't want you. Why do you think she left you here? Why do you think she left and left you with me? She doesn't want anything to do with you. So she created a narrative that wasn't true. Um, because I'm in contact with my biological mom now and we've, you know, 
you know, it's a, still a tough relationship, but we've mended so much better, you know, um, than we were years ago because there was a lot of anger. But um, she did create a lot of anger within that relationship to keep us distant from her. Um, and she was in the room. So, you know, we couldn't ever tell her what was going on because she was in the room with us. And yeah, so when we moved to Spain, I'm sorry, when we moved to the US, things took a downhill spiral real quick. Um, so they were obviously always abusive. But when we moved here, for some reason, it was just like, I don't know what happened. She just went even more crazy. The, I mean, we were getting beaten multiple times a day now. There was much, much more painful. She was breaking skin. It was blood. She would, I mean, a, another punishment thing she would do is chop our hair off. Um, she would just buzz cut it off, mm. um, you know. In this time where you guys, all three of you, were you going to school? Were you guys having some sort of social life outside at all? No, never. So in Spain, we didn't. We had a lot of books. Uh, Shakespeare, Thomas Hardy, Jane Austen, encyclopedia. So we had a lot of, um, I guess, well-recognized books and literature. So whenever we could, we would read, um, obviously without her knowledge, because she didn't want us to learn or be educated. So no, we didn't have any social life. We couldn't watch the news. She would keep newspapers away from us. Obviously, it makes sense now that I'm older. She wanted us to, you know, be completely secluded and mm -hmm. not know rights, you know, not know our rights. And I mean, we were terrified because she had, when we moved to the US, she had us on a six month visa. And, you know, when the six month visa expired, we were actually heading to the airport and she stopped the car and turned us around. So now we're illegal and she had our paperwork. So she would often threaten us, but if you try to run away, no one will know, you know, who your family is because you don't have any family, only me, and they'll give you right back to me. And wow. she said, yeah, and she said, you're illegal here. And I'm going to tell them what terrible girls you are, um, awful, lazy, dirty girls you are, and they're going to give you right back to me or put you in jail. Like, honestly, that is what I believed. I thought, okay, I'll go to jail or I'll come right back here. Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> And all of that was scarier. There was a fear. She used strongly a fear tactic to keep you guys there in her, in her grip. How did you yeah. feel, though, in this time? How did you feel about yourself as a person, you know, your worth, your identity, having gone through well, this? Uh, well, in this situation, I didn't have an identity. Mm -hmm. It was it wasn't. It was just survival. Every day was survival mode, survival mode, survival mode. Um, there was no hope for a future. There was, you know, I mean, what when I came out of the situation, I was 18 years old already, you know, like. And was running away ever an option for you guys? Yes. So when so we had thought about it, toyed with the idea. My younger sister and I thought of a plan. So we'd skim. So when she'd take us to Walmart, 24-hour Walmart, you know, um, at 2 a.m. in the morning, she'd give us cash for, like, groceries or whatever, um, buying chicken feed, you know, the deal. Um, and we would skim, like, cash 
and it was literally like a dollar at a time or, you know, and we managed to buy, <laughs> my young sister and I had this plan of like dyeing our hair and getting some supplies and like buying tickets for a Greyhound bus. Like we were convinced we we're going to do this. We're going to take a Greyhound bus to like California or something. But we didn't tell our older sister because she was a lot more loyal. Wow. That I mean, I'm honestly speechless when it comes to everything that you went through. Seeing you right now and how you are today and being able to share these these experiences, but there's a lot of stuff here that's that's so deep and I want to explore that with you. And before we get to that, I want to talk about when this ordeal came to an end. When you were finally rescued how that how did that happen how were you guys able to be saved by these social workers um so always make fun of the nosy neighbor you know (laughs) the ladies with their binoculars you know being nosy and but that's essentially what saved us so um thank thank goodness for nosy neighbors so when we were in america there were two women who lived across from each other one was a Spanish lady. She was a court interpreter. So she would get home from court probably sometimes 3am in the morning. So she noticed some activity going on. We would, we were there during the day. You know, we didn't go to school. It was clear we didn't go to school. Our hair would be chopped off. Hmm. Weird. Like one day it would be long and the other day it's like chopped off. We had bruises and stuff on our faces. Um, We didn't have shoes. And then our clothing, so she would go to Goodwill and buy like, I mean, I weighed 80 pounds. I was probably a a zero, size zero or two. Um, And she would buy size 14, 16 women's clothing. And so we would roll these, (laughs) we'd roll these pants up like, eight times just so they would stay on our waist so uh, you're telling me it's really quick because you said that you would have 2 a.m walmart runs and yeah. and you guys would be in this like this looking like that and going there yeah. and it never tipped anybody off right exactly i can't exactly. even get my mind around that I, I and i i think i think it's not that people don't notice mm-hmm. they just don't want to get involved because that means they're putting themselves out there and that's awkward. And I think out of sight and out of mind is a, whether people like to acknowledge that, I believe that happens a lot more than they like to admit. So, so long it's not really their issue because it's not affecting them directly. But I think, and I'm sure probably over the years that's changed a little bit, but especially back then, like when I think about that, I'm like, if I, if I work somewhere like Walmart, and that happened, it would be a huge red flag for me. You know, if this girl came in with dirty nails and bruises on your you know, face, on my face and, cuts and and a chopped off chopped. boy haircut and like, I, yeah, who stank? Because I know we stank like chickens mm-hmm. and farm animals. And yeah, was, you know. So this yeah. woman that your neighbor who ended up then calling. Yes. So the there were two neighbors, and I think they were talking to each other about, wow, this is really strange. Like, 
they don't go to school. We can, they tried, I remember they would come to visit and we had a bench outside the house, but she would never, Mercedes would never let them get past that bench. So that was as far as they could get. Obviously there's chicken poop everywhere, like, Mm -hmm. you know, in the yard, on the driveway, like the chickens would be like neighbor's houses, like way down the street. Um, They had signed, the neighbors had signed a petition to get her removed or at least get the chickens out of the house. I mean, the neighborhood. And I think to get her kicked out of the neighborhood. So I don't know if that's why the ladies initially came to like visit or check out. Like, I don't really know the arrangement they had, but, but they were, they were checking it out or trying to, and she would never let them come in the house. I remember it was close to Thanksgiving and the, one of the ladies bought a cake, like a Yule log. She made cake, you know, and talking to her later, she was like, yeah, that was just my way of like trying to get close and to the situation. And they went to the social workers. And I remember this little white car slowly driving by the house. And you noticed, you know, because, you know, you notice things like, well, we noticed things like that. So Mercedes was actually out getting chicken feed or something. And my older sister and younger sister were outside. I was inside the house and they were outside and they, these two women approached them and I looked out the window and I saw them talking to them and I was like, Oh no, you know, who are they? So then I went outside and I think it was my older sister had said something about, yes, we were, we were being hit or something like that. And I was like, Oh, she can't say that. Like, we're not allowed to say anything. Like, Oh my Mm. goodness. So, so I was just like freaking out inside. You guys were teenagers at this point. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know. And then I thought, oh, she's going to drive back. She's driving back. You know, we didn't have cell phones. This was before that, you mm-hmm. know, like she's going to drive around the corner. I just knew she was going to drive around the corner and these women are going to be here. We're going to be talking to them. We're going to die because mm-hmm. she's going to be death um, for talking to anyone. But then my young sister chimed in and I was like, you know what? I just felt this is it. This is it. So then I started saying, yes, it is true. Because they were saying, we've heard this from neighbors. We've heard this. Is it true? And, and so I remember just telling information. They're like, okay. And we, we kept saying, but please, you have to leave. You have to leave because she's, she's going to be back. She's already been gone, you know, about an hour. She's going to be back soon. And she can't see that we're talking to you. So I just remember. And then my older sister got the house phone and called Mercedes said hey oh we actually need milk for the dog or something and to stall her a little more and the social workers I could you know looking back now their faces just like oh my gosh like is this for real you know they just couldn't believe it and yeah so they said okay we're gonna be back in a couple days well here's our card if anything happens give us a call if nothing happens between now and then you need anything call us between you know here's the card um, you know, we just, you know, so they left and about 30 minutes later, she gets home and, you know, it's just, it's this surreal feeling because it's the closest thing to hope we've ever had because finally someone other than ourselves knew about the situation. Oh my God. We didn't know what was going to happen after that, but someone, it was just like a release, like somebody out there in the world knew what was going on, you know? And I hid the card somewhere in like um, a box or something like that. And 
we continued cleaning and it was just like, wow, like it was crazy. Like we were just silent. Like, of course she came back saying, you dirty whore, blah, 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 do this, do that. And, you know, I'm going to go take a nap. So she went and took a nap. And that evening, you know, we were cleaning and there was a knock on the door. And my older sister went to the door and it was a different social worker this time. There was a detective and two other social workers. So there were like three social workers and a detective. And, you know, my sister said, I know who you are. Who do I tell her that you are? And the woman said, you tell her that this is DSS social workers and we need to speak to the owner of the house immediately. And so my older sister went upstairs and I remember because I was in the downstairs closet, like <laughs> putting a broom away or something, hiding, I don't know. And um, she knocked on the door and I could hear her and she said, you know, social services here to talk to you. And I just remember explicits. I remember Mercedes, you know, because she was napping, she was sleeping and she woke up to hear that. Mm-hmm. And she just locked. She was like, bleep, 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 you know. And um, I remember her telling me, clean this, take the eggs out of the out of the bathtub. And this, I'm like, and looking back now, it's like, this is hilarious. How hilarious the state of the house. This it would have taken a hundred years to get that clean, but it was so funny looking back that she said, Clean this, clean that, get this cup, get that, you know. Well, they're in the house. Never have yeah, because you never clean you could never clean that, but it was her cry for help I suppose because she knew she knew this was it she had been caught this was over for her so they came inside because there's a minor the reason they were able to is because there was a minor in the house I suppose Ah. so that was their in so by the by law they had to take her out Alex out my young sister Um, she was 15 and my older sister went to the lead social worker and said, I know you're taking our younger sister, but what about us? And they said, well, how old are you? And she said, well, I'm 22 and her, you know, hopes, um, 18. And she said, well, you're adults. You can leave anytime you want. And, and we said, Nope, we can't, we cannot leave anytime we want. Um, you don't understand. We can't leave. We can't leave. You know, I think that kind of brings to light this kind of disconnect, this misunderstanding about how you're impacted if you've been, yeah. if you're in the situation. No, yeah, no, it does. So it's eye-opening about, yeah. So she said, grab a bag and put any of your belongings that you want in the bag and then go outside by the car, meet me in the car, get in the car. And so I was like, okay. So my young sister was already in the car. And I remember my older sister and I were walking out the door about to head down the staircase outside and Mercedes, the social worker was behind her, like the detectives and everyone was behind her and she was facing us, you know, she was at the bottom of the staircase facing us. Her hands were like clasped, like praying, like, and her face was just like in agony and just like sorrow and pleading in her breath. She was like under her breath. She said, I'm, please stay please I'm so sorry I'm so sorry you know don't tell them please don't tell them like what you know what about the animals what about the animals and I was like bye lady so I I I was off like I went to the car um but my my older sister she shuffled she was like 
back and forth a little bit, you know, the loyalty, oh, oh, this is wrong. Oh, what, you know, I need to stay like, and basically we'd kind of, kind of just pushed her in the car. And, and last, did your older sister experience the same amount of abuse that you guys did? Was oh she gosh, we all did. That's we all did. So, in the, so yeah. So in the beginning she treated, Mercedes treated our younger sister with a lot more love but over the years and especially when we moved to the u.s it was equal she just she went crazy even more crazy than she was yeah um yeah that was insane so the last time i ever saw her was when we were backing out of the driveway and she just looked forlorn and like shocked you know and that was the last time you ever saw her in person yeah in person well, yeah. When did you know see? I so years after that, I went to college in downtown Charlotte, well, uptown downtown. I don't know what they call it. Um, so in Charlotte, <laughs> and I had heard that she was trying to cross the border. You know, the U.S. Marshals and the uh, FBI's had her flagged, the borders flagged. So if she tried to cross, they went to get her and. A few years later, that's like six years later. That's what happened. Uh, I think it was six years. My timeline might be off, but she tried. She was in. She went. She fled to Bulgaria, out of all places. I don't know why she went to Bulgaria, but she tried to get back. I guess to Spain, I think, or England, and the U.S. Marshals went to go get her, and they brought her here, and they took her to prison, basically, and. While she was waiting to stand trial, they, um, she was in Charlotte. So she was like five blocks away from me from where I went to school. When I was in school, it was really, it was weird knowing that she was there and I was here, but under different circumstances. And um, they, I remember her being taken to like New York to a mental hospital or some, somewhere like they were doing an evaluation on her. And then uh, I guess, I think she served four years in prison and then um the time around the time of her trial they said she was too incompetent to stand trial and that just mm, that made us so mad um how did you feel about that well because they said she was a low threat to society i said really so there were three girls who spent 13 years 13 years being abused physically and mentally and she's a low threat to society so if she did that to three three people. You think she can't turn around and do that again mm-hmm. to someone else? Yeah. So you know, for then back then it was just like, oh, what a cop out! What a of course she of course she pled insanity. Of course she pled that. But now I think yeah, she definitely is insane. Oh. I wanted to ask you when it came to that fateful moment where you guys backed out of that driveway and you left. How was that for you, that experience for you going back? Exhilarating, I would say, like just uh, scary. It was actually really scary too, because I was like, I just know she's going to come after us. She's going to find us. She's going to find us. So that night they took my younger sister and they found a foster home for her because, you know, the state had programs and things, obviously, because she was 15. But my old sister and I, they just they put us in a hotel but it was a hotel that we drove by often and it was on the way you know it was 
yes. away from the house, but it was on the route yeah. to the house. And I was terrified. I was like, she's going to know we're here. She's going to know. So we didn't sleep. We were just like staring out the window all night. And my sister definitely was. It was my old sister and I, you know, just terrified. I remember for like two years after that, like the intense terror that she was, you know, I remember the cars she drove, Ford Econoline vans. Anytime we saw it and we were driving the car or something, we'd duck, we'd duck our heads and like, she drove that, she drove that. So everything <laughs> reminded us of her people, like people's demeanor, someone with mm. the same haircut. How, how did you start to heal? How was that road to recovery for you? And what was it like adapting to a normal life? Because you were 18 and you had basically, like you said, you didn't have an identity. So that whole process after the, after you were rescued, how, how did you manage? Oh, um, the people who adopted us was the so- lead social worker on the case mm. and her husband. And she had to quit her job after a while in that county because it was a conflict of interest and because she was on the case. But she, you know, in what? 20 something years of doing this work she had never felt called or led to like get involved the way she did like to help mm-hmm. like obviously to help children but never to like personally get involved yes. with a case Personal. and and she did and we it was but it was on both sides because we just felt at home with her you know like like I'd never met someone who just made me laugh like like her you know and like in a conflict situation, she was so calming. Um, yeah. So, so you were you were adopted by the caseworker, you and your sister. Yeah, yeah, me and my sister, and then my. Who I don't know. Why I'm crying. Oh, this this is an emotional story. It's I completely understand. So. Um, after we came to live with them, my younger sister was still in foster care. And well, at this point, she was in a group home. Oh, bless. She felt so alone there because, you know, group homes are a lot of actual, actually naughty kids, you know, and she felt she had done something wrong. And why did we get to live with a family? And she was still in a place with, you know, kids were actively doing wrong things. And she felt she had done something wrong. Uh, but eventually a judge gave legal guardianship and custody of our young sister to our parents. And I honestly think like we did go to counseling a little bit. To me, that didn't help me because when you first come out of a situation like that, and obviously for the rest of your life, probably, but especially when you initially get out of something like that, no one understands. You feel, how can they understand if you don't even understand? what happened, why it happened, if you can't barely process it. So to have someone else who knows nothing about you and they're sweet and they're trained and they try the best they could, but drawing my inner child, you know, just wasn't, it would actually make me really angry. Um, But I think the number one thing was the love and the acceptance and the safe place that my parents and Uh, adoptive brothers you know because they had three boys biologically and then there were three girls uh, which is funny because they always wanted six kids three boys three girls and really yeah after three yeah after three boys they stopped trying and 
who knew later on in life they'd get three girls but their absolute support and love i think really healed us in a way that even counseling couldn't have done i remember always being very driven um i heard of this program called ged program and i would ask our mom i'm like I, you know what do i need to do to get into that program because i knew i couldn't go to high school i knew i was aged out like mm-hmm. so i thought all hope was lost but when i had heard of the ged program i was like oh this is it I, if i can just do that if i can just do that then i could then i could probably get go to college like or then i could get a job or then i could drive you know mm-hmm. so to me doing that just opened the doors so in my head like oh my goodness it's funny so so we entered that program finally after a couple of years like they were like just you don't need to do anything you just need to like settle just stay like you know just just be here i'm like no i need, oh, wow. to, like, so, I need to do something like i couldn't yeah i was never settled like that was um, that was something you knew. what did that mean to you being able to get your ged and get that education it, it meant freedom over mercedes it meant control over her and control mm. over the situation I couldn't I had no control over as a child so mm. everything you know, that had been denied to you as a kid you yes. wanted to have for yourself yes so yeah and and I think you know and even I I'm helping survivors now I'm in a place where I can help them now and it's 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 beautiful to be able to give back the way my parents and other people gave to us you know but I find myself telling them like this one girl we're helping like i find myself telling her what i would tell myself back then you know if you stop and you let yourself crumble with the thoughts of your past and the situation and they'll replay in your head and that's okay and there'll be days you can't get out of bed because you just can't do it you just can't get out of bed today or you're thinking your mind is your worst enemy and you're thinking oh i'm old now Oh, I got out of the situation so late. Oh, my relationships it take it's so much harder for me to build relationships of whatever kind. If you live there, then they win. Because if you go back in the past consistently and stay there, you're never, you know, you've got a life. Like it doesn't matter how old you are, there's hope, you know. There's cuz if you don't do anything now, then it falls on you, not anyone else. Hmm. How did you decide to begin to take control of your life? And what have you done to show that you are in control of your life now? Uh, first of all, I would say take no crap <laughs> from anyone. I've definitely had to hone that in a little bit more because I would call myself rough around the edges a little bit. And essentially, I think what keeps moving forward is that no one will fully understand the moments the days the minutes the things that you've gone through and that's not just me that's you know even the girls i help with their situations sexual abuse wherever it's been no one will understand that but you the world is a great place there are great people in it but there are also very evil people as a child i firsthand before i even reached adulthood saw the worst the worst side of humanity the worst side of a human being you know you have to break that cycle and you have a choice every day to let that control you to be that way 
or to help other people. And I think that one positive, there are there are positives from the situation when I think about it and if I actually analyze the situation. But the one positive that is beyond yourself is when you help other people. So if I, you know, I'm a peer. So whenever I'm helping a survivor, I'm not above them. But because I've been through similar situations, I understand the fear or whatever it might be. I'm a peer to them. I'm on their level. And it gives them hope because, you know, they see, well, if you don't look like you've been through anything. And I always hear that. Gosh, everyone always tells me that you, you know, you look so put together. You speak so well. Like I would never, you don't look like someone weird or you don't look like you Hmm. went through that. Like, how is that? You could you you could have been in so much trouble like you could have been anyone like why do you because you do have responsibility at the end of the day we all do and I feel responsible because I know just like I thought there was no way to get out just like I thought standing in that kitchen saying oh one day if we ever got out this would break CNN news you know like Mm -hmm. things like that like but not believing we would you know just like that the hope I felt when those social workers came to the house I know the with the increasing numbers of human trafficking labor sexual agriculture whatever it might be I know there are children adults like people who can't even speak English you know like currently right now as we speak in situations like that and I know I sound to some people, it sounds, you're so dramatic, like, it's not that deep, you just have, your feelings literally go a mile a minute, like, I'm just, like, forceful with the, you know, my passion for it and feelings, and it's aggressive, I know it comes across that way, people need someone who will take a stand for them, and say something when other people don't want to get involved, when other people are scared you know kids who are missing kids who are in trafficking they need people they're forgotten and they're being abused and everyone thinks oh it won't happen to me or oh it doesn't directly affect me and you're right but you know like I just don't know why I just feel strongly for people who are currently in that situation because I know they are um and it sucks you know it really stinks that in 2020 kids are being sold for sex and labor um and they don't have a right anymore to live their own life um but for the most of the general public it makes no sense and you know, but I do understand. So I feel like it's a responsibility. Um, no matter how weird I seem, um, you know, or if I seem like a bleeding heart or a martyr or what, whatever, I know if I help one person, they can help another person. Well, I don't think you're weird at all. And <laughs> I think that your values and your passions are... S- exemplary and inspiring and truly a a model that many, many, many need to follow because 
it is what this world needs. And you're right. There are so many people out there that are suffering and they are silenced and nobody knows of them. And it's not right. And it shouldn't continue as it is. And for people to just say, it doesn't affect me and I'm going to not worry about it because it doesn't fit in this, in this, my current situation in any way. I don't think that's right. As humans, we should be there for each other, you know, just because, because it's the right thing to do. Simply stated, it's the right thing to do. And you coming here today and giving us so much of your personal story and sharing your emotion and your, your hopes you know, and your fears and your dreams. It's incredible. It's incredible to see not only what you've endured, but how strong you are, you know, how strong you are to come out and be able to help other people. And to those that are hearing about this for the first time, this sort of situation, this sort of trafficking situation, abuse that's out there, what are some things that people need to do to help uh, you know to actually make a difference and create that change in the lives of these that are that need the help yeah and I know it sounds harsh like oh people don't do anything blah blah they um they see it and they just turn away and and while that is true I I do on a human level I obviously do understand that people don't know how sometimes mm -hmm. to help I think it's really important to be aware. Control is a really big one. So if you see someone with another person and you ask, you know, there's person A, person B, you're asking a question to person B, but person A is answering for them, you know, making all the choices, decisions, discussion, person B is, mm. you know, either looking down, looking away, they're quiet, they're, you know, you know, and some people would say, well, you read into the situation too much. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so did the nosy neighbors, mm -hmm. you know, and that live right. in our neighborhood. They easily, you know, two out of what, 20 people who live there, you know? So I, you know, it, I think to be aware, I also met another group of people when I was out, oh gosh, last year. And we got on the topic of human trafficking and oh, I don't really know how we did, but we did. And then they start to tell me about a neighbor, a guy who had a girl living with him, like a woman, and they had a child, but it wasn't his children. And she wasn't his wife because his wife moved back to their country with his kids. And that he would make like, he would come over and he made some sexual comments about tying her hands, you know, in a laughing, joking manner. Like he, he would make some off-colored remarks um, and that he just got a really bad vibe from this guy. And I said, really? So, and I didn't know these people. I just met them when I was out. And I said, do you mind giving me the address of where he lives? Because it's your neighbor. And they were afraid. At first I said, sure, sure, sure. Okay. I'll text it to you. I'll text it to you. Well, they had told me where he worked. It was like a car dealership in Charlotte. He said, okay. And so the next day I texted them back. I said, Hey, I know people who work for the Charlotte Police Force. I, an FBI who I know closely. Um, so I know people who could 
look into the situation, said, I will not give your information out, but could you please tell me the address of where you live or where this guy lives? Um, because if something's going on, I really need to report that. And it sounds fishy and I have a feeling about it. And the woman said, no, 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 it's nothing. I think I was just, I think, you know, I'm just looking over reading it, blah, blah. Well, wouldn't you know? And of course that upset me. But I was like, what can I do? Um, but I gave the, the police officer like the place he worked, you know, like the, the dealership he owned. And a um, couple months later, she texts me, hey, do you remember me? I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, did you see the news? I said, no. She said, that guy I was telling you about, our neighbor got busted for like sex trafficking. He had oh that my- woman, wasn't his wife and stuff. And I said, oh my God. It just. Oh my uh, god! That feeling in my stomach, and I, I point blank said, the next time you get a feeling, no matter how small it is, you think something's off, you need to say something. I said because she suffered for two more months, and here you think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that I met these people and that you know. Um, Absolutely. So what I'd like to do, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to provide information for everyone listening in the show notes for people to be able to access information on what to look out for, you know, what to be aware of, more information on where they can receive, like resources for where they can receive information in their locality regarding human sex sex trafficking. So who to contact if they have any suspicions, you know, who to reach out to. Because that's inf- it, that's super important. It's important for people to get informed and to get involved. You know, I mean, even if it's just dropping the line and letting others handle it, that's going to be super, super important. And it's important to highlight and emphasize the responsibility that everybody has, you know, to say something. If there is suspicion, if there is a gut feeling, if there is a doubt There are different means. You don't have to go up and knock on the door or call the cops. There are people that can do things discreetly to under, to be able to, to dig in further, but dropping a line is going to be important if you see something. So I'll make sure to provide this information. I want to thank you so much, Hope, for being here today and sharing as much as you did and just exploring. I can't have asked for a better interview. Oh, thank you, Lori, so much for inviting me on your podcast. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I felt safe and free to like just delve in. I'm pretty tough, you know, so I don't break down and cry often at all. But it surprises me sometimes that what what part of the story that I talk about makes me cry. So I'm sorry. um, I think I I think and just to say, I think that those parts that make you cry kind of change as well as you kind of go on through life. And, you know, (laughs) I think that, you know, some things hit you harder the farther you are along in your healing process. But yes, I come safe space, you know, and you really you really opened up. And that's what that's what people need to see. They really need to see, you know, who you are and what you went through. We want to understand. And to those that are experiencing or going, you know, going through the aftermath of the rescue you know, really need to understand as well as there, that there's hope and that there's a better future there waiting for them if they, they, they take it, right? They have to take that. Yeah, it's a, yeah. I think the aftercare is 
my focus now for survivors mm-hmm. because because you're out now now what do you do you know exactly I think that we can actually explore that a little further possibly maybe um, a follow-up interview or a follow-up discussion so that we can provide that value as well yeah <laughs> all righty good well thank you so much hope thank you Lori. thanks so much for having me absolutely thank you so much for listening to this episode if you enjoyed it and feel inspired and would like to be a part of the relentless minds community you can join the movement for change on instagram and twitter we would also love to know how your experience has been as a listener if you haven't yet please go to apple Podcasts and subscribe rate and review this podcast Join us next week for another powerful story. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.